Psalm 142. Amen. Tis the season. We're going to look at this psalm tonight, and I've titled the message and our study this evening from the from the psalm. The wording comes from the psalm, No Man Cared for My Soul. Psalm 142 is believed to have been written by David during the time that he was running and hiding from Saul and was in the cave where Saul came upon him and closed in around him, not realizing that he had David in that place, not realizing that David was in there, but there was no escape for David as Saul and his men fell asleep in the mouth of that cave. There was no place for them to get out. It's believed that Psalm 142 was written by David as a prayer during that encounter. And of course, we know that God did deliver him from that in a miraculous way. But as we mentioned last week, this is another one of the Psalms in a series of several that speaks about David being in a place of desperate need and crying out to God, looking to God for deliverance from those who were persecuting him. Psalm 142 has a very similar flavor to the psalm that we studied last week. In fact, there's a usage of some of the same terms and phrases that you'll recognize as we read the psalm tonight. But again, he's emphasizing the need for God to deliver him. And of course, when we find ourselves in difficult situations, in what we might call a perilous place, we realize how much we need the Lord. But why is it so often that when we're not in a place like that, we forget how much we need the Lord. And perhaps that's something about why God allows us to get into this sort of a place. In fact, as I was reading a little bit of uh, Spurgeon's comments here on Psalm 142 earlier yesterday, he said something, I'm going to paraphrase what he said because I can't quote it exactly, but he he said something to to the gist of, If only David had remembered when he got to the palace how he prayed when he was in the cave, perhaps he wouldn't have committed some of the sins that he did as a king. And that's a staggering thought. But certainly in Psalm 142, it's a place of great need for David. He's crying out to the Lord and asking the Lord to deliver him. The other thing that I want to mention before we read Psalm 142, and you'll notice as we see a repetition of several things that we've seen in Psalm 141 last week, it's a reminder to us that we, w- we may find ourselves time and time again in the same place, praying the same prayer of need to God and crying out to Him. And sometimes I think we're reluctant to cry to God in that way, feeling like, well, I've already been here and He's already delivered me. Do I really have to pray about this again? Or perhaps we haven't seen the answer to our prayer and the question comes to our mind, should I pray again? Is it something that I should again bring before the Lord? And Psalm 142 is a reminder to us that God is pleased with prayers that repeat our need and cry out to Him, even with sometimes the same language as we've used before. So look at Psalm 142 with me tonight. The scripture says this, I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice unto the Lord did I make my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path. 
In the way wherein I walked, have they privily laid a snare for me. I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me, no man cared for my soul. I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise thy name. The righteous shall compass me about, for thou shalt deal bountifully with me. Once again, we find David lifting his voice to the Lord. In the first three verses, we find David's prayer recorded for us. And he's describing how he is crying out to the Lord. And once again, he uses that word, I cried. We mentioned this last week in Psalm 141. That word denotes an intense and passionate crying out to God. This is not a passionless prayer. This is not... Uh, your your uh, garden variety of praying to God, reading through a list. This is David who is yearning for God to answer something on his behalf, and he is crying out unto the Lord. That word cried literally means to lift up the voice, and it means to cry loudly. In other words, he's using some volume here as he cries to God. I marked this down and I said this was an intense cry to God. Do you know the difference between when you're praying intensely and passionately and when you're praying just in a a repetition or a blah kind of a way? There is a difference between the two, isn't there? And usually when we need something desperately from God, that's when we tend to be quite intense in our prayer. So you'll notice there, he says, I cried unto the Lord. And just a reminder again here in Psalm 142 is that our prayers should be directed unto the Lord. At this time, it becomes very apparent in the context of Psalm 142 that there was no help available for David from men. There was nothing that anyone who was with him could do in this situation. And it was such that he felt there was no one there to help him at all And at this point, he cries unto the Lord because it's the Lord who can do something. It's the Lord who can make a difference in this situation. And there's a reminder for us that when men cannot help us, when there is no earthly solution, there still is a place that we can look for help, where we can cry out for help. He says, I cried unto the Lord with my voice. And this really... Uh, points out to us that his cry was intentional. He wasn't just going through the motions of prayer. He wasn't just completing his Christian duty, but rather he was crying out intentionally to the Lord with my voice. He's lifting his voice to God, and he spoke to God out loud with his voice about the need that was vexing him. I cried unto the Lord with my voice. Then he repeats it again in verse 1, with my voice... Unto the Lord did I make supplication. Now that phrase, make supplication, is very interesting. And in the Old Testament, this word supplication really denotes humility. It's the idea of bowing before someone and begging for something from them. And this is the idea that David wants us to carry away here, that the Holy Spirit wants us to grasp 
is that when we come to God in prayer, we are humbling ourselves before Him because He's the only one who can do something about our situation. We can't help ourselves. David had come quite to the end of anything that he could do to deliver himself. And so he's crying out to the Lord and he's asking God for pity in his life. He needs God to show pity upon him. Now, many people are reluctant to stoop or to humble themselves and ask for pity. But if God does anything for us, it will be because of his mercy and his grace. Because you understand that we do not address him as an equal or a peer. We address him as those who are lowly, as those who are humble, as those who are completely undeserving. Therefore, if God were to do anything for us, it would be because of his mercy and his grace, his pity upon us. And that's exactly what David is asking for here as he comes to God and he makes his supplication. Now, notice in verse 2, the language that he uses, he says, I poured out my complaint before him. I don't know about you, but I like the language of verse 2. I poured out my complaint. Can't you just picture David on his face before God, and he's just He's just letting it all out. He's telling God exactly what is going on in his heart. I poured out my complaint before him. I've noticed that it's easy for us to vent our complaints on Facebook. It's easy for us to get in a corner with a trusted friend and to pour our heart out to them and let them know what is going on and let them know how they should have pity upon us. But how often do we pour out all the details of our burdens before the ear of our Father? How often do we take the things that are weighing us down and before we go to an earthly friend or before we post it on social media, do we get on our face before God and pour our heart out to God? You know, how often is it that we find other places to unburden ourselves, and we never speak to God about the things that are on our heart. And of all those who could help, it's God who is the most able. It's God who could certainly do something about it. And yet, so often in our lives, it's God. He's the one that we neglect to address with our burden. He's the one that we fail to bring our, our, our heart's burden before Him and, and pour it out. Now, he uses the word complaint here. It's a very specific word. And sometimes, I think as believers, we say, well, I shouldn't complain. And that's true. We ought not to murmur and dispute. But at the same time, God wants to know what's on your heart. I should say, God wants to hear what's on your heart. Because he already knows Isn't it funny how sometimes we think, I'm going to hide that from God. I don't want to say that to him. Even though that's how I feel, I don't want to say that to him. You know, he already knows what's on your heart. He knows what you're thinking. You might as well be honest with him. And as you speak to God, you might find that he will purify your thinking as you pour out your complaint before him. I poured out my complaint before him. And that, that idea of before him is... I presented it to him. I brought it to him. 
I showed before him my trouble. And, and again, the, the emphasis here is I sh- when he says, I showed before him, I made it obvious. I, I laid it all out. I gave all the details. I told him exactly what was going on. I, I put it all out on the table. I showed before him all of my trouble. And David did have some trouble. It's very apparent in Psalm 142 that David is in the depths of despair. He's in the straits of distress and anguish. He doesn't know which way to turn except to the Lord. But I want you to notice in verse 2, he wasn't ashamed to come to the Lord and say, this is my trouble, this is exactly what's going on in my life. And neither should we be. We ought to be quick to bring our trouble to the Lord. We ought to be quick to bring the things to him that vex us. Sometimes, especially depending on your personality, you know, I mentioned about people putting things on Facebook or finding a a trusted friend and pouring out their heart, and that's one kind of personality. There's another kind of personality, and that's the kind of person who doesn't tell anybody. They don't ever tell people what's going on in their life. They, they, They put it all inside, and they cover it over, and they push it down, and they figure, I'll take care of it, I'll, I'll deal with it that way, and that's not good for you. What's the best thing that we can do? Well, it is to take our, our trouble to the Lord. Do you remember when uh, Hezekiah got that letter from the king of, was it Assyria? And, and it was brought by that messenger, I think his name was Rabshakeh or something like that. And he brought that letter... And the letter was basically an accusation, and it was a threat, and it was a guarantee that they were going to be destroyed, the city was going to be leveled, and Hezekiah was going to lose his kingship. And do you remember what the Old Testament says about how Hezekiah dealt with that? The Bible says he went into the house of God, and he took that letter, and it says he spread it out before the Lord, and he talked to God about that letter. Now, that's a good lesson for us, that we can bring our troubles, whether your troubles are something that you can share with others or your troubles are something of a private nature that you need to keep to yourself, I guarantee you God can keep a secret and he cares about the things that are burdening your heart. David had learned he could come to God and he could show God all of his trouble. He could pour out his complaint and God will never chide him. God would never turn him away. God would never turn a deaf ear to him. In verse 3, he continues in this vein of thought. He said, When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path. Have you ever been there in your life when your spirit was overwhelmed? What David is describing is that the burden he was carrying had become so great that he was completely buried and covered over with trouble. He couldn't find any way out of the hole that he was in. His spirit, speaking about his inner man, speaking about that light of hope within him, was completely overwhelmed. He was in a place where he had nowhere else to turn. This was a great and heavy burden that he was bearing. In fact, it seems to be from the language that David uses in verse 3 that what is on his heart and the burden that he's bringing to God was so serious and so heavy that there was nothing else he could think about. There was nothing else 
that would make its way into his mind. He, all he, everywhere he turned, he could, he could just think about the fear and the despair and the trouble and the, the problem that he was facing. His spirit was overwhelmed. Have you ever been there in your life when you, uh, you go to bed and you lay down and all you can think about is that worry or that issue, that anxiety, that burden that's pressing in on you and you say I got to stop thinking about this and of course the harder that you try to stop thinking about it the more that you think about it and the more difficult it is and and maybe you say I know I need to take that to the Lord I need to cast my burden upon him so he'll sustain me and you bring it to the Lord and you hope he'll take it away and you can stop thinking about it then maybe you finally fall asleep and then you wake up and it's there isn't it See, that's what David is describing. He's describing a fear, a despair, a distress that is so vivid and so real that he has no solution for it. He's coming to God and he says, my spirit was overwhelmed within me. But notice what he says in verse 3. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then thou knewest my path. He's recognizing that God knew exactly where he was. He knew and he's recognizing that God had seen him in the path. In this case, if David is in that cave, God watched David walk into that cave. He watched David go back into the darkness of that cave, into what he thought was a safe place. He watched Saul and the army that was with him go right up to that cave and say, hey, this looks like a great place to camp. He saw it all happen. He knew the distress of David's soul. He knew where David was before he came to this cave. He saw him on the way. David said, here I am in this situation. And you know, oftentimes in our circumstances, we get so buried with the details of our circumstances, it's hard to get a bird's eye view. But God is above it and he sees it all. He knows exactly what's going on. He sees the end from the beginning. He's not confused about any of it. And David is recognizing that. He's recognizing that God is not overwhelmed, though he is overwhelmed. In the way wherein I walked, have they privily laid a snare for me. Now again, he speaks about these snares. He spoke about these in Psalm 140. In Psalm 141, now he's speaking again about these snares, these traps that have been set for him. He's trying to walk in the right path. This is the way that he's walking. What he's describing is, I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to please the Lord. I'm trying to live for God. And right in the way that I'm walking, the enemy has come and put a snare there, and he's done it privily. It's been quiet and secretly, and he's trying to trip me up. But the implication from verse 3 is that not only did God see David in the path, but also God saw the enemy that came to the path and laid the snare. God was able to deliver him from that snare because God knew exactly where it was. Now David is recognizing that he's in a perilous place. He's recognizing that there are those who would do harm to him. He's recognizing that though he is walking in the right path, there was a snare that had been set for him. Can I say one more thing about that? There is a high chance that when you're walking in the right path, 
there will be some snares that are set for you. If you're being attacked by Satan, that's usually because you're on the right path. You're, you're walking in the right way, and the enemy doesn't like that. He doesn't care much for getting people off the path when they're not walking on the right path anyway. He's going to let them go on merrily on their way. So if you're sensing the attack of the enemy in your life, then understand that's a good indication that you're on the right path. But thank the Lord. He sees that path. He knows exactly where we're at. So here is David. He's crying out to God in these first three verses. His prayer is recorded for us. In verse 4, he goes into a little more detail about the peril that he is in. And, and this particular verse, in my opinion, is like the theme of the psalm. That's why I used the phrase from the verse for the title tonight, because this is what is really weighing down on David. His peril, when he looked, he says in verse 4, I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. What is he talking about? Because we know if, in fact, this is talking about David in the cave, there were men who were with him. He had his band of of faithful men who had come along with him. And if he had looked to his right and looked to his left, he would have seen men who were there with him. So what is he talking about when he said, no man was there who would know me? Well, it wasn't that there was literally no man that was there. But rather, David is expressing his sense of loneliness, his sense of being devoid of hope. So even though there were some men with him, there were no men that could do anything about the situation that he was in. In other words, they were all in the same situation. You know, sometimes the loneliest place in the world is in the middle of a crowd. David says, there's no one there. I looked on my right hand. This was the place of strength and security. This is the place for a trusted friend. This is the place where a, a, a king, would, his armor bearer would be there in that place to step forward into the battle and to defend him. David says, I looked on my right hand. There was no one to protect me. There was no one to care for me. There was no one there that would even know me. I don't think this was literally true. And oftentimes, when you and I feel the loneliest, it's not literally true that there is no one. But loneliness often happens or often strikes us, even in places where that's not really the case. But you can't reason people out of it when they're sensing that no one really cares for them. No man would know me. By the way, verse 4 is a messianic prophecy. It's a reminder of what Jesus would face when he went to trial. It's a reminder of what would happen when Jesus was forsaken by all of his disciples. All those who followed him would go away. He was betrayed by Judas. He was uh, denied by Peter. The other disciples fled and wanted nothing to do with that because of their fear. They ran from from the the presence of Jesus, and Jesus looked around, and there was no one there with him. In this case, verse 4 is predicting what would happen to Christ, but it's also describing the reality of what David faced in his trial. 
And it is true. When it says there, refuge failed me, it's describing this, that there was absolutely no way or place of escape. There was no secret tunnel to get out of that cave. He may have thought that there might be a way of escape before that. He might have thought, oh, we're in the cave. It's a safe place. But now there's no hope whatsoever. There's no way that they're going to get out of this cave alive. There's no hope that they're going to escape. All hope that he previously had was vanished. It was gone. He says, refuge failed me. There are many times in our Christian life where we may feel exactly like this. We may feel all alone. We may feel as if no one understands. We may feel as if no one cares about the burden that we're bearing, so we might as well not say anything anyway. We, we may feel that all of the options for deliverance or for escape have been exhausted, and there's nothing left that could possibly be done. There's no way that we can ever get out of this situation. We certainly can get in places like that in our life. And if we're not careful... That can overwhelm us. He goes on in verse 4 and he states this, No man cared for my soul. Do you know in times of distress, the greatest need that a man has is the need of his soul. So often we're looking to try to help people's body. We're trying to fix the physical pain that they might be going through or try to relieve the financial pressure that they're dealing with, or try to help them with the physical circumstances that are, that are uh, causing havoc in their life. But during times of calamity and distress and, and discouragement and, and a lack of hope, the greatest ministry that people need is ministry to their soul. And yet the truth is that many of us really don't know what to do. In those kind of situations. I got a text from someone. You wouldn't know them. They had someone. Who was close to them die. And he texted. And he said pastor. What should I do in this situation? What do I say? How do I, how do I help the family? How do I. I don't know what to do. Should I pray? Should I, should I say some special words? What, what is the thing? What was he asking? He was asking. How do I minister to their soul? When somebody dies, you can't bring that person back. You can pray for them, but you, you can't bring that person back from the dead. They're gone. You can't, in that situation, you feel like, I can't give them any hope. So often, the things that we want to say, it's going to be okay. And the other person is thinking, no, it's not going to be okay. It hurts. It's painful. I have a pastor friend who said something the other day. He, he received a, a letter or a call from someone. And uh, this was a man whose wife had passed away. And this man's pastor had told him, you just need to get over it. And, and this friend of mine said, you don't just get over it. He's gone through deep grief in his own life and understands some things about that. He said, you don't just get over it. It's not like that. You don't deal with grief in that way. But so many times the things that we have for advice are just not helpful. They're not really caring for someone's soul. When David looked around, there was no one that could help him. There was no one that could solve the problem that he was facing. There was no one who cared for his soul. 
I think if you look around in the world that is around you, you'll find many people who feel that no one cares for their soul. Tonight, there's many people who are suffering, many people who are sorrowing, many people who are wallowing in the mire of grief and hopelessness, who don't know which way to turn, and they don't have anyone to care for their soul. Now, in this case, David was a believer, and he was in a very, very low place. It's a low place when you look around at everyone that you know and think, there's not a single person that cares about my soul. Whether this was true or whether it was not true, regardless, this is how he felt. This is what he was dealing with. This was the burden that was on his heart. And he was coming to the right place with that burden. Coming to the Lord, that's the right place. He was in a perilous place. His prayer, his peril... But then you'll notice in verse 5, 6, and 7, he begins to speak a little bit about his prospect. His perspective changes just a little bit. In verse 5, he says, I cried unto thee, O Lord. It can be a great mercy for us to get to the place where we think no one cares for us. And the only place we can go is to the Lord. There's a song that we sing sometimes about prayer living below in this old sinful world, hardly a comfort can afford. And the song goes on to ask the question, where could I go but to the Lord? You know, we need to be reminded of that. There's no other place that we can go besides the Lord. He says, Lord, I cried unto thee. Now, this is a repetition From the previous verses, he's reminding us of the direction of his prayer. He's crying unto God, and he says this in verse 5, I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. Consider those two thoughts. Thou art my refuge. This is the exact same word that he used in verse number 4 when he said, Refuge failed me. Now in verse 5, he says... Thou art my refuge. Yes, refuge had failed him. Yes, it seemed as if there was no hope. But suddenly, he seemed to get a burst of hope when he realized that there was still a place where he could go. There still was a place of protection. The word refuge means a shelter, a place of protection. In other words, what David is saying is that even when it seems that refuge had failed him, there was still hope in God being his refuge. Do you know tonight the hope that Jehovah offers to his people is never compromised by the circumstances of life? Never. No matter what kind of a burden you may be bearing, no matter what kind of circumstances you may be going through, God is still a God of hope. You may look at a situation in your life and say, it's hopeless. There's there's just no, nothing that could be done. It, it'll never change. There's, there's no sense that anything good could come out of this. But we serve a God who delights in taking really bad things and bringing good out of them. Amen. And so he says this, you, thou art my refuge. But he also says in verse 5, thou art my portion. My portion in the land of the living. And the word portion that is used there in verse 5 speaks of an inheritance. Now, you may recall that at this time in David's life, he was patiently waiting to become the king over Israel. 
He had already been anointed by Samuel, the prophet of God. Everybody knew that David was supposed to be the next king. That's why Saul was trying to kill him and get rid of him. But notice that David here is not talking about when I get to be king, that's going to be my portion. David's not saying, hey, when my ship comes in, when, when I finally hit it big, when I get to be rich, you know, that's going to make me really happy. No, he said this, thou, Lord, art my portion in the land of the living. His consolation was not in the gifts that God gives. His consolation was in God himself. He said, thou art my portion, God. If God never gave you one more thing, would he still be enough? That's the question for us to ponder. David was content to have his relationship with God. Oftentimes, the troubles that we face met the result of us finding that our God is enough. Sometimes we may be reduced in our portion in the sense that we have less finances and we have less resources and maybe some of our relationships have dried up and and that we could be tempted to think there's no more hope. But sometimes God needs to bring us to that place so that we can realize that He was always the one who was our portion anyway, not those other things. So He says, God, Thou art my refuge and my portion. I like how He specified in verse 5, in the land of the living. This is not just a heavenly hope. This is not just something for eternity. Although as believers, we have a hope for eternity. This is something that is for the nasty now and now. For this life, right here, right now, He is our portion. If you get nothing else out of life, if you have a relationship with God, if like Lazarus, who sat at the gate of the rich man, allowing the dogs to lick his sores, and all you have is God, it's enough. And David recognized that. David saw that God was his portion and his refuge. But then he goes on in verse 6, and he asked God, attend unto my cry. He's asking the Lord specifically to prick up his ears, to to incline his ears. That, That phrase, attend unto my cry, is the same idea as what we we might envision as just tilting your ears forward so that you can, cupping your hand behind your ears so that you can hear distinctly what another person is saying. That's what he's asking God to do. He wants to make sure exactly that God can hear what is on his heart. Now, obviously, obviously God doesn't have to use his hand behind his ear to be able to hear what we're saying. But what is being emphasized here in verse number 6 is is the fact that David must know that God has heard him. He doesn't just want to speak words into the air. He wants to know that God has heard and that God will answer his prayer. There is a difference, isn't there? Attend unto my cry, for I am brought very low. His circumstances had brought him down to a low, low place, a place of depression, a place of discouragement, a place where he was languishing in the mire of his sorrow and he didn't know what to do and he admits it before God. He says, I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors for they are stronger than I. 
There were enemies that were present that wanted to destroy him and he knew it. He couldn't escape and he needed God's deliverance. Do you like having enemies? Boy, that's a heavy thing, isn't it? When you know that somebody has decided they don't like you. They've decided that they're going to somehow bring hurt or harm to your life. And you think, what did I do to deserve this? You, you, your mind races to think, now how did I mistreat them? I don't understand why they're treating me this way. And, and that's kind of what David is going through here. He says, Lord, I need you to deliver me because there's persecutors. And these persecutors are trying to destroy me. But also in verse 6, he says, they are stronger than I. David has recognized that as strong as he is, and he was strong at this time, but as strong as he was, he couldn't get past this, this, these persecutors. He couldn't overcome this enemy. This was something that required the intervention of God in his life. It's necessary that you and I would regularly come to the place that we would admit we don't have the strength to deliver ourselves. The reason we have to come to this place is because we don't look to God for His mercy until we come to this place. So often we're looking for our resources and our way of getting out and how am I going to handle this? David had gotten to the place where he recognized, I can't do this myself, Lord, they're stronger than I am. I need you to deliver me. Then notice verse 7. He says, bring my soul out of prison. In David's case, he was probably referring to the cave. The cave, which had seemed like a place of deliverance, rescue, and fortress, had instead become a prison. He was trapped in the back of the cave. His enemy was at the front of the cave, and there was no way out except through the enemy. And David says, bring my soul out of prison. Now that's a picture, a word picture, but so often I sense that the circumstances that people are facing, sometimes the circumstances that I face, feel like a prison. I didn't choose to be here. I didn't choose to have these things happen to me. I, I never asked for these troubles in my life. And here I am and I'm hemmed in and there's no way out of it. There's no escape from this. And oftentimes that's how our circumstances can feel. So David looks to the Lord and he says, bring my soul out of prison. God, I need you to deliver me from this dungeon. From this place that has no way of escape. Why? That I may praise thy name. David wasn't just concerned about being delivered for deliverance sake. Just so that he could have an easier life. Or so that things would be more simple for him. Or so that he would feel better about his life. No. He says I want to praise your name. His motivation was to be able to acknowledge the power and the ability of God. He didn't want the glory for himself. How often is it that we cry to God and God delivers and God answers our prayer and then we walk away and say, yep, I did it all myself. Or maybe we don't say that, but we also never give credit to God for what he's done. That's something that we are often guilty of. 
We're quick to ask people to pray for us. Do we follow up to let people know this is what God did in answer to prayer? You know, that's something that's important. David said, I want you to work on my behalf so that I can praise your name. Father, I want to praise you. In verse 7, he goes on towards the end of the verse. He says, the righteous shall compass me about. He's anticipating the fellowship of godly people. He's anticipating there's other people who love the Lord just like he does. And that uh, at some point, these are going to gather around him and they're going to be a comforting presence to him during his time of trouble. And it is true. When God's people go through trials, God has a way of bringing those who will minister to the soul. It's a precious thing how God often uses others to meet the deep needs that we have. God brings people many times who have no idea what we're going through. No idea what we're facing. No no idea what is on our heart. And they offer a pleasant word and a needed time. An encouraging text message. A note in a card. Not even realizing what is going on. And just at that moment... We receive just exactly what we need, and God has used someone else to minister to us. This is what David anticipated. The righteous shall compass me about. And then notice the hope that he expresses at the end of verse 7. And I love how this psalm ends on a note of strong hope. For thou shalt deal bountifully with me. To be dealt with bountifully by God means that David was anticipating a sure reward from Jehovah. Yes, the circumstances were dark and bleak. Yes, it seemed like there was no way out. Absolutely, it seemed like this was the end of the road. But David had the promise of God to cling to, didn't he? You say, what promise did he have? He had the promise that God had said he would be the next king of Israel. He had the promise that the time was coming when he would sit on the throne. He had that from God himself. And in that moment, David took his eyes off of the circumstances and he put his eyes on the promises of God. And he said, Lord, I know that you're going to deal bountifully with me. Brethren, tonight, we have precious promises that we can look to. And those promises assure us, if you're a child of God, they assure us that our Heavenly Father is always going to deal bountifully with us. We may face some struggles and some difficulties, even some what seem like hopeless situations in this life and in this world. But our Heavenly Father has given us exceeding great and precious promises to cling to. And those promises give us an assurance that our Heavenly Father will always deal bountifully with us. Tonight, I don't know what discouragement you might be facing, but I know that God's promises are still true. I know that God is still able to deliver. And you may feel like there is no man that cares for your soul. But I want to remind you tonight that even if no man cares for your soul, There is a God in heaven who cares very deeply for your soul. He knows you inside and out. He loves you with an everlasting love. He has assured you that he is going to bring bountiful blessing in your life. 
And I urge you tonight to look to the one who cares for your soul.